Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 101. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. How you been holding up? How's this week been? It's been good. It's been quiet, but it's been fine. You know, I can't really complain, given all the stuff that's going on. <laughs> Just having to be stuck in my apartment 98% of the time is not that big a cross to bear, I guess. How about you? Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat, right? Like, it's not the funnest time I've ever had, but in the grand scheme of things, pretty lucky. So, yeah. no, nothing worth complaining about. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to do something a little bit different today with our with our podcast. We've had to really innovate in this era of no hockey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, can you, I guess, introduce what we're trying to do today? Because um, you, you did a very impressive amount of research for this. Yeah, uh, God help me. I hope that it... Uh... It's worth something to our listeners. So, we talk a lot about bad teams here. Good teams, bad teams. Is this team making good moves or bad moves? A couple weeks ago, we did two podcasts on where we thought every team in the league is at. But it occurs to me we talk a lot about, man, this team is kind of screwing up. This team is not doing that great a job. Without really laying out always how we think this works or how you're supposed to build teams, or what the basic idea is. And we thought now that we have some time to reflect on it, we might say, okay, here's what we think the idea is when you're building a hockey team. And here's how it goes wrong or goes badly. And we'll try and get into a couple of famously disastrous moves. I'm pretty sure you can already guess what at least one of them is going to be, because it's the most infamously bad trade of the last decade. But we'll try and get to what exactly is going on there and why was that so stupid. You know, it's, it's easy to say this bad trade was bad because they did a bad thing and made bad judgment. And that's true. But it's worth trying to figure out, okay, what exactly was going on? What were they supposed to do instead? How did they get tempted into making a bad move? And how do you avoid those things in the future? Right, and and what you found is when you tend to dig into these things, there are some pretty broad categories that a lot of these moves fall into, and and there are kind of common causes for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're managing a team, right, that's something that you can kind of be conscious of to help you avoid making those types of mistakes in the future. Yeah, exactly. Every team makes mistakes. It's worth noting, even the best managed teams, certainly any team run by Arvin and I would make mistakes. Oh, absolutely. It's just worth trying to think, okay, what exactly happens here? We could just say, oh, well, you got it wrong evaluating a player, and that's probably true in a lot of cases, but it's worth trying to figure out why. So we'll start with our whole little theory here. This is an an update or like a modification of what's called Stars and Scrubs. I definitely did not come up with Stars and Scrubs. That's been a theory in multiple sports for a very long time. And several teams, including Pittsburgh, Chicago, and the Leafs, to some extent, seem to be run on it. But I like to call this big talent, little talent. And this is how I look at it. The point of big talent in the NHL is that that's talent that is stars. It's core pieces that you want to keep probably from the time that they're drafted through maybe their first UFA contract, which means that you would be keeping these guys for 10 to 15 years, potentially. This is where Sidney Crosby goes. 
or Evgeny Malkin, or Alex Ovechkin, or Austin Matthews. It's the kind of talent that is really, really hard to get any other way. With big talent, you're okay overpaying it because it's so hard to replace, because there are so many minutes on the ice to go around during a hockey game, which means that even if those guys are overpaid a little bit relative to market, you're probably still getting special value out of them because they're so hard to find. You kind of fall in love with big talent to some extent. You still have to be aware that it gets old and it gets expensive like anything else. But you take an attitude of when we get this, we build around it. We don't give it up unless we have very little other choice. The thing that, you know, kind of separates big talent from old talent is how hard it is to get. You have to either win a super lopsided trade or more likely you have to draft it really high or you get a spectacular draft hit like David Pasternak or something like that. Right. It's just bloody hard to do. Yeah. Side note, this is why the Detroit teams of, um, you know, the the 2000s were, were so strong right they, they they got some of their big talent two of the biggest you know seventh round steals ever in Pavel Datsyuk and, and Henrik Zetterberg exactly right and it is worth noting that there was also no salary cap in that era so there it was possible to sign more big talent than it's easy to do now the Leafs have signed a big talent player in John Tavares but there aren't always that many guys around in unrestricted free agency and they cost a lot of money but the idea is that big talent is the talent you kind of cherish and keep a hold on. And if push comes to shove, you probably overpay it a little rather than lose it. So I'm thinking core star players. Right. And it, it just, it's worth getting into here. Um, this might be slightly controversial, but one of the reasons why, as you, and you've alluded to this already, but one of the reasons why overpaying stars is slightly palatable, besides the Leafs having done it, <laughs> is you know, but seriously the, the reason is as you said they're very very hard to replace mm-hmm. and you only have so many roster spots right roster spots are a constrained resource mm-hmm. so when you when you have one player who you know gives you x amount of wins for only one roster spot that means you're not depleting that resource more than so if i have you know one player worth nine wins that's worth more than two players worth four and a half wins mm-hmm. right because i by adding those nine wins like either way i've added nine wins but within the second case i've used one more roster spot to do so exactly so if i've got one player who's adding nine wins let's say which is spectacular uh i can add someone else in say the second line center slot who could also get me some more wins Whereas if I've already used up my first and second line center slots on pretty good guys, then I don't have that same option. This, this, there is a limit to this in a salary cap league where you're overpaying so much for a player that it's no longer really worth it. But I think, and Arvin, I know you tend to agree with me because we've talked about this before, it's a pretty high level for genuine star players. Like the amount of money that you have to be paying Austin Matthews before he's not really worth it anymore is huge. That doesn't mean that I don't think his contract is pretty big. It's 
probably more than I think that he's worth in a market value sense, more than his peers make. But in terms of him actually being worth having at that price over not, I'm still pretty glad to have Austin Matthews because he's big talent. He's a star player and he would be extraordinarily difficult to replace. And by extraordinarily difficult, I mean basically impossible for where the Leafs are. So that's one category. And then there's little talent, which is all the talent that's not big. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. That includes mid-level players. In the Stars and Scrubs way of looking at it, the Scrubs are players who are on ELCs or who are making league minimum. So uh, think of, let's say, Pierre Engvall and Jason Spezza who are hopefully giving you more value because they're making very little money. That's part of it. But you can give, you know, middle-class contracts to these kind of mid-level or lesser players. It's just you can't fall in love with them. The difference is how you treat that kind of talent. You expect that it's going to be on a shorter cycle. It's going to get overvalued more easily. It could decline faster. And you want to manage that carefully. There are a lot of teams that fall in love with little talent. The biggest example is the Detroit Red Wings. They signed a lot of complimentary guys who were part of the core or who they thought were sort of missing pieces around their stars. And it kind of worked okay for a while, as long as their stars were still there. Now the stars are gone. They have a huge amount of money devoted to players who are not remotely worth it. I'm thinking of Justin Abdelkader, for example. And now they're kind of stuck and they're a very bad team. Some of that is circle of life stuff. You do get better and you do get worse. But the point about little talent is that you don't fall in love with it the way that you do with star players. You don't neglect it either. One of the things, and we'll talk about this a little bit with the Buffalo Sabres, is you don't have to let it get to nothing. Even when you're tanking, you should still have talent coming in and going out, even if all you do is trade it. But you are going to want to have some carryover as long as you can keep these contracts at a reasonable value. A lot of the mistakes that teams make is that they fall in love with these kind of secondary players and they overpay for them in a trade or just in money. And as a result, they're not as flexible as they could be. If you can lock in star players, big talent, then you should focus on the sort of churn of little talent and how to maximize it. But you have to be more ruthless. So, you know, big talent you marry, little talent you kind of date. And you let it turn over and then you move on. All of this depends on where you are as a team. Like it's impacted by how good are we now? When do we anticipate being good again? You should realistically be getting good all the time when you're bad because you should be picking high in the draft. You should have more cap space because you're not very good so you can sign more people. And so you should sort of naturally move in the direction of average over time. Part of the reason it's so fascinating that Edmonton or Buffalo have struggled so hard, and I have to say the Leafs struggled so hard for quite some time, is that you really shouldn't be terrible for like a decade on end. You should have talent coming into your organization constantly, and that should build up, if you're smart about it, to at least get you back to average or move in that direction. 
I hope that that kind of clarifies how we look at it. Basically, you have the big talent that you hold on to longer, that you're more generous towards, that you're more determined to keep, and you have the little talent where you're always active, you're always trying to find it, you're always signing guys like Jason Spezza or minimum contracts, you're always trying to get draft hits, but you don't fall in love with it. You let it turn over faster, and you are more willing to let it go. I hope that that made sense in terms of laying out how we tend to approach things. I think it does. And the other thing worth noting, um, you can fall in love, and people, teams do fall in love with little talent that is not their own. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is where, I don't think this happens quite as much now. People have gotten a bit smarter, but you used to have players who went on a heater during a, play, a playoff run heading into a UFA year and then would get signed for money that they couldn't live up to. Mm, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, everyone thought Matt, actually Matt Bileski did sort of fall into that boat, even though his contract was less than everyone expected. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's something kind of worth noting. And, and it, it's perhaps the most common thing to, what's one of the most common mistakes to make. The other one, and this kind of gets into why te- you mentioned teams have kind of a pull towards average, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you're bad, you should be getting good at some point because of the high picks and the cap space you can weaponize and all that stuff. And similarly, when you're good, you know, over five years, you're more likely to be to come down because your players are going to be getting older and are going to be getting more expensive usually as well. Um, mm-hmm. While still, while not necessarily getting any better as players. One of the reasons why teams like Toronto and Edmonton and Buffalo uh, have been so bad over like long periods of time, often they make mistakes where they show they haven't really judged their team properly. They don't know where they are in the team's life cycle, mm-hmm. right? And then they make a move that creates a, that is a large mistake. The most obvious example of that is with the Leafs is um, the first Phil Kessel trade, where <laughs> where yeah. the, the team thought, and Brian Burke thought, this team is, is good. This can be a playoff team, maybe even a, you know, a good contending team. And in reality, they were probably a decent enough team that had maybe the league's worst goaltending. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's... If you, if you had to choose between the worst team in the... Uh, the worst skaters in the world and good goaltending and uh, a good team, but the worst goaltending, you would take the good goaltending because the goaltending is literally the most important part of any team. Yeah, it can save you when you're bad, whereas truly awful goaltending, like we had with Vesatoskala or the like... You can't do a lot to save yourself from that. You can't win games where you're allowing 11% of the shots on goal to go in. So, yeah. That's sort of how we tend to see it, is in terms of those cycles. If you hit big on big talent, and it has to be said, Pittsburgh and Washington were able to sign Ovechkin and Crosby and Malkin to term deals that are now illegal. Under the current CBA, like, you can't give the kind of term that they had anymore. And they locked in a huge amount of excess value. Like, Crosby's contract being at 8.7, because he has a mystical fascination with that number, has really set up Pittsburgh for success again and again and again, because they had superlative star talent in him, Malcolm Letang, and also a lot of excess value. It's worth noting 
again, you know, we said every team makes mistakes. Pittsburgh has made mistakes. Every team you can name that's extraordinarily well run, even, you know, the Bostons and the Tampa Bays of the world, they have the odd bad contract. They miss. They misevaluate. They miss draft picks once in a while. But that doesn't mean that it has to submarine you if you're still strong on the fundamentals. If you still have your your big talent uh, under control and you can keep that churn of players coming in to support it. For the Leafs' perspective, I would say that they have four, arguably five players who fall into big talent in Matthews, Marner, Nylander, uh, Tavares, and Riley. You could kind of argue with Riley's inclusion on that list, to be honest. Uh, I'll, I'll go to the mat and say Nylander belongs there. But that means that, as a consequence, because they've devoted so much cap space to those players, they have to be more ruthless. And I think people sort of understand this, at least to judge by how many Andreas Janssen trade proposals I've seen going around. Everyone's sort of like, okay, we're not going to fall in love with these secondary players. But it does mean that if Zach Hyman needs a raise, a big raise, in 2021, then maybe you don't give it to him. If you don't think that he can outperform it, if you think that his value is no longer going to be commensurate with his cap hit, or better than his cap hit, then you have to let him go. And all, all kidding aside, that's kind of the main lesson of little talent, is that you don't fall in love with it. Right. So it might be worth getting into some concrete examples now. Yeah. So first of all, I have to say at the, off the top, there's one obvious exception to that whole thing that I just laid out. It's the Vegas Golden Knights. The Vegas Golden Light Knights probably have less clear star talent than any other really good team. Uh, Mark Stone is obviously, I think he's a star by any description. And then I would entertain arguments either way about a lot of players. But it's probably worth noting, they took in a ton of what I would consider little talent, and it was all wildly undervalued. And they got it through a mechanism that no other team can duplicate except maybe Seattle, if they're lucky, obviously. It's just really hard to capture huge excess value at each position. Like the result was that Vegas built a team where everyone was a little better than their spot on the roster. And that added up to a huge amount of wins above replacement because everyone was better than he needed to be to be a second line winger or a second third defenseman. And that happened so fully throughout the roster. They were able to overachieve in a way that's really hard to do. And like it's to duplicate. Yeah, sorry, it's worth saying that without Florida, you know, punching themselves in the throat with Marsha So and, and Riley Smith. Yeah. Like that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Um, without the absolute freak of development that William Carlson went on, which is mm -hmm. bizarre. Like, well, I remember, I, I remember being sort of interested in William Carlson when he was in Columbus. He was like basically a fourth line center there, but yeah. he had good defensive numbers. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing was like, this guy just has no offense at all. And then he, he scores 40 goals. And yes, there was a shooting percentage bender. And yes, he had good line mates. But like, if any, no... You know, we've said this before, but if no one predicted William Carlson would ever be a 40-goal scorer, ever, his mom probably didn't think he'd be a 40-goal scorer. No, this is a guy whose career high in goals was nine in 81 games. Like, he just, 
I don't see that you could have seen this coming, and I don't know that anyone did, including Vegas. And, you know, that's fine. Good teams get lucky, among other things, you know. I, I think you can point to every really good team, and you can point to someone who was probably better than they had any right to expect. But it was a huge hit. So, you know, Vegas has been both lucky and good. That's for sure. I don't want to discount that you could try and do this if you really nailed a lot of those little talent moves and then you were able to supplement them with one or two stars. You could get to being a very good team and Vegas has done that, but I think it is important to note that the way that they were built is not repeatable. And so while it's possible to do this and there are teams that are more balanced St. Louis is probably the next closest really good team that's more balanced, but they still have stars in Tarasenko, Ryan O'Reilly, uh, Alex Petrangelo, and Colton Pareko. So, yeah, I think that this mostly holds up as a way of looking at teams, but it's it's only fair to acknowledge that, you know, it's not perfect. Right, and, and hockey's also high enough variance as a sport where once you get into the playoffs, it, it's anyone's bet, really. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it, it. I don't think we're saying, oh, this is the only grand plan to contention and there are many many ways to skin the cat here but you know when you look at the winners and the high placers in in previous years and you you look at tampa bay a team that hasn't won a cup but has you know gotten very close and had you know very good teams both in the regular season and the playoffs they're another team that fits into this mold um Mm -hmm. and again they there's some fortune slash good scouting whatever you want to attribute it to when you get someone like um kudrov in the second when you get Braden point the third yeah, but yeah, they they're built around in large part a first overall pick and a second overall pick in Stamkos and Hedman. Yeah, like the reality is you're going to tend to have a lot of big picks that are fundamental to good teams. That's what we're talking about with big talent because it's just hard to get it any other way. You know, it's not impossible, but it's bloody difficult to do. I you know, St. Louis is probably Interesting there, I suppose, because, again, they did have star talent fall into their lap, so to speak. I mean, that probably doesn't give them enough credit, but they went out and they won a big trade in Ryan O'Reilly. But even then, Petrangelo was a top five pick. Tarasenko was a huge hit at 16th overall. So, you know, by and large, that has to be how you get that talent into the organization. If you want something encouraging for the Leafs, it's that they do have the stuff that's hardest to replace. And you look at teams like Washington. What Washington did was that they got a very good core of players and they kept turning over surrounding talent and taking runs at the cup and getting opportunities. And eventually it paid out. St. Louis did the same to some extent. You know, they had teams that were consistently good that were in a position to contend. And then when an opportunity came to go over the top, they did it. Given the high variance of hockey, it's possible to be good for a long time and not win, as the San Jose Sharks. But all you could really do is try and be smart about how you handle your talent at each stage and then wait for the opportunity to fall into your lap. I I think Washington did that really well. And I think Tampa has generally done that impressively. They're, you know, consistently squeezed, but they've put together an outstanding lineup 
And so, yeah, that, that's kind of how I come at that. Yeah. One thing Washington I don't think gets enough credit for is they also had the kind of just win a trade thing where they, they traded, I think, Troy Bauer straight up for TJ Oshie. Mm. Right? Yeah, wow. <laughs> they, they just straight up won that trade, right? And that captured a huge amount of excess value. Oshie's a hugely significant part of that team. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of a, you know, kind of an after me the deluge policy in Washington, and you see the, the results of it in San Jose, where they kind of know what's going on in the life cycle of the team. They know that they have stars and that it's going to end eventually. And so they have a lot of contracts that maybe won't end super well. I'm thinking primarily of Oshi and maybe Nick Backstrom because it's going to extend into his late 30s, John Carlson. And I'm not saying that that's great because, you know, there is going to be a bill to pay, but there is a logic to it in saying, okay, it's more important for us to be as good as we can right now, to maximize every win we can right now. Because we've still got our big talent humming along at a very high level. And now pretty much all the future wins after that big talent drops off aren't doing us any good. We're going to have to rebuild. It's just how it is. And so, you know, I'm not saying it would be totally impossible for them to kind of Houdini their way to a a new generation. And maybe it's doable. But I get being more more willing to go kind of all in at short notice. I think Washington has done generally a pretty respectable job in recent years, just in persistently competing and putting themselves in that position. So, yeah. So it's probably time to get to the fun thing, which is, okay, why do teams screw this up? Or how do they screw this up? We've talked about not knowing where you are or how good you're supposed to be. But it's maybe worth doing some concrete examples. And so I think it's that time. Let's go to Hall for Larson. <laughs> uh, this is the the granddaddy bad trade, I think, in, in a lot of eyes. Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. You know, there's a famous tweet from Bob McKenzie confirming that it is one for one. That the Oilers did not get more back uh, for Taylor Hall. It's worth noting that you've seen some contrarians say that since New Jersey eventually traded Taylor Hall for not that much, that New Jersey actually lost the trade. Nope, that's not how anything works. Sorry. (laughs) It's probably worth looking at why. Also because Peter Chiarelli is beginning his redemption tour. There was a, a very good piece at The Athletic by Jonathan Willis, who is, in my opinion, the best of the Oilers beat reporters. And he talked about how Chiarelli is kind of trying to have a little apology campaign where he talks about, here are the mistakes that I made. But a lot of what he's saying to excuse himself still isn't true. Like, there's some some misremembering of history to try and make his mistakes look more defensible than they are. And so it's worth looking at that. Taylor Hall was not scoring at quite the rate that he subsequently would, but he was still scoring and he was still driving play. He was by any definition a star player and he had four years left at six million. I think that's part of the thing that people maybe forget about this trade was that they had the player cost controlled for a term, for a while. There was no imminent issue of Taylor Hall needing a raise. 
and there was no issue of him being overpaid, frankly. At $6 million, he was an insane bargain. Even at the time. Even at the time. And that's before he went on to win the heart, making $6 million a year, which was absurd. And so, Taylor Hall is big talent. I think he's recognized as such. Adam Larson is little talent. He's not a bad player. This is the trick, is that he's not by any means awful. I, I'm a little leery of him now just with what he's going through in terms of injuries and what I'd expect for him going forward. But it's not like he sucks. The point is just don't trade star talent when you don't have to for non-star talent. No matter how much you're convinced that it fills a hole. You can't fall in love with fit to the point of giving up on big talent when you don't have to because that is so, so hard to find. I mean, the Edmonton Oilers, this was the payback for all their suffering, was high picks like Taylor Hall and Leandro Seidel and Connor McDavid. Giving up one of those picks in a losing trade is about the worst thing you can do, and that's why it's so remembered. It's unforced talent out. So why did he do it if it was so stupid? Well... There may have been some perception that you can't win with players like Taylor Hall, which is still kind of persistent. I mean, geez, I, I really feel for, for Hall in this situation because he gets tagged for the failures of his teams. And it's like he played for crappier Edmonton, a New Jersey Devils team that was, like, still rebuilding, and then Arizona. Like, <laughs> I don't think that you can really expect him to force those teams to win. He dragged one of the Devils teams to the playoffs when they had no business being there. So, that was part of it. They were also freeing up money for Milan Lucic, which is the other thing. One, that destroys any excuse that Taylor Hall, um, his cap space had to be freed up because they turned around and wasted it immediately. And Lucic is a very, was a very good complimentary player. I want to emphasize, it's not like he was always bad. There was a reason that he was so well thought of. But for a player like him, who's still a, a mid-level talent, a complimentary player, you really do not want to be giving him term into his declining age years. You don't fall in love with mid-level talent. And they did it simultaneously with Larson and with Lucic. And they gave up a star player to do it. That's what makes this so galling is the unnecessary loss of big talent. Yeah, it's... I mean, th this this is really, like, the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, there's other things that are hard to do. This was very foreseeable at the time, you know. So it's, like, a first do-no-harm thing. Yeah, that's something that I've thought about a lot with uh, Kevin Dayoff in Winnipeg, for example, where he got some ways with this team. It's kind of going the other direction now because they've lost most of their defense. But he got quite a long way in terms of his team rising to average or even above average just by not making a ton of big mistakes. You know, we were talking about that. Talent comes into your organization. You get money that frees up. You get higher draft picks. And you start to climb up the leaderboard. And the infamous failures like Buffalo and Edmonton and Toronto are all because they somehow screwed up that kind of natural buoyancy with a team where it's like, if you just leave it alone, it eventually rises up to the average, you know, just from the influx of talent. Losing 
star players in deals like this. I, I can't emphasize enough how unnecessary this was and how stupid it was. I know everyone's familiar with it, but I think it's worth emphasizing. What went wrong here was giving up on a star player unnecessarily because you fell in love with non-star players. So, yeah, that's kind of the bottom line there. And I think you've seen the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to point out, almost every time you're going to sign a player in free agency, Mm -hmm. they are not going to be a big talent player. Yeah. Right? Like, it's... It, it's a high bar for being a star. Milan Lucic was a very good player in his, in his career. He was a first-liner, a good first-liner for large parts of his career, mm-hmm. right? But realistically, because of the age curves, because of aging curves and when you are getting star players, you know, uh, in free agency, which is almost always after 27, mm-hmm. they have to be basically elite players before then to still be big talent over the life of their contract. Exactly. And Which even, is the argument for John Devar. Yes, and Artemi Panarin. Even those guys, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're probably not going to be worth their deal at the end. You're paying for the first three years of John Tavares to subsidize the last four years. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and same with Artemi Panarin, right? He might be an even better example. So it, it's... The, a lot of times, you, unless a player is extremely undervalued, right? Um, they probably are not going to be it's probably going to be very obvious that they are little talented or sorry that they're a big talent like if you, it's almost one of the things where if you're signing a guy in free agency and you have to ask is this guy big talent or little talent he's little talent yeah like generally you know star players when you see them the only guys i could think of that might be an exception to that are guys who are extremely undervalued for their defensive impact but even then that would be to a huge degree like mark stone yeah mark stone's a big talent guy but like yeah. he, he's the guy that where some people might be like, oh, maybe he isn't. But like, when you look at everything altogether, he clearly is. Yeah, but he's exceptional. Usually these are guys who have huge point production because they're massive offensive contributors. They eat a lot of minutes. They are recognized as such. The NHL is partly kind of a, a whole system for deciding talent, and I'm not saying it's by any means perfect. But the really undeniably great players do tend to rise to the top to some extent. And so you generally know who they are. Um, Ryan O'Reilly is interesting in that context because he's the kind of guy you could argue is fringe. I would consider him a star player. A lot of his impact comes from he's a great two-way center. He can produce. He's not by any means useless offensively. But his value is two-way. And that probably brings us to... Another really big mistake, (laughs) the Ryan O'Reilly trade. This was, mm, honestly, I do think that this deal should be considered at least equivalent to Hall for Larson. Now, I've heard some things from some Sabres fans who who I know who are smart people who have suggested that uh, Terry Pegula, the owner of the Buffalo Sabres, intervened to maybe veto some other deals. I don't know what a total free hand um, Sabres management had here. But giving up a player like Ryan O'Reilly, who is a star player, who was a first-line caliber center, for, you know, a depth couple of players 
and a first round pick and a second. When those are going to be later picks, that's a really, really paltry return. Because there's no way you're going to end up at any stage of this with a player as good as Ryan O'Reilly is right now, likely. They had him under contract for a great deal, so it's not like there was any imminent concern there. He made seven and a half as a cap hit. He'll decline as it goes, but like, he's such a good player. And I think the overall kind of stench of failure around the Buffalo Sabres and the desperation to improve finally after years of being bad led them to talk themselves into, we just have to get rid of this guy to get rid of this guy. Like when you get so fixated on this guy maybe is the problem. And I think that this certainly happened a bit with Taylor Hall too. Do you remember how he was talked about? Yes. You will talk yourself into giving up really good players. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, St. Louis going on to win the cup puts a real exclamation point on this. But this was a dumb trade right off the top. So, yeah, I think, again, this was... It's sort of the inverse is, like, you have a star player and you get so disillusioned with him that you allow yourself to give him up for what's not a great return. If the Sabres had Ryan O'Reilly, I don't know if they would be a playoff team now but they would be a hell of a lot better than they are now. They would not be a one-line team, which is what they are. Mm -hmm. And that's a really glaring mistake. Is like, you have to be so careful with players of that caliber. You know, I worry that I'm kind of encouraging or like advocating for like teams to be boring almost because, you know, it's always fun when star players move in big trades. But the reality is you should be really wary of getting burned on this because the most famous mistakes for the biggest failures and we've now talked about the Oilers with Hall for Larson the Sabres Ryan O'Reilly and the Leafs back then with the first Kessel trade um they came from misestimating where they were and like failures of talent estimation and letting themselves lose out on big talent in the Leafs case it was because they didn't get to draft Tyler Sagan because they gave up a first round pick when they sucked. So, th like, that's the kind of thing that's going to get you fired and is going to be a mark against your team building forever. Because it's the kind of thing that extends the time that you spend in the basement. You're taking the natural flow of talent that's pushing you up towards average, and you're cutting it out. You're cutting some of it out. And I think in every case, it's really obviously uh, held back the teams. I think in... You know, the cases of Hall and Ryan O'Reilly, they were both very obviously good players. And Ryan O'Reilly, you know, I'm sure he was tired of how things were going and he had a bit of a glaring plus minus. But he's a phenomenal player. And the Sabres lost sight of that. And it really, really hurt them. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, maybe it's worth sticking with the Sabres because one of the things you alluded to off the top was you don't need to let little talent drain to zero when mm -hmm. you become a bad team. And actually, one thing I want to mention is if you keep guys like O'Reilly and Hall, it, it almost automatically helps with your little talent problem because they can elevate just reasonable NHL players to much better than they are. Mm -hmm. Right? So maybe we should just talk a bit about like the mistakes the Sabres made just in general when, when they went you know full scorched earth. 
Yes, that's a very good point. And I know that you talked about this, you know, why did the Leafs pass the Sabres? Well, the Leafs had holdover talent. The Leafs had good players who were all what I would call little talent, but were quite good, like to the high end of it, in JVR, Nazem Kadri, Jake Gardner. All of those guys are not quite to the point where you fall in love with them or you treat them like stars, but they're all very good, and they were very useful to the Leafs as they tried to get good again. When Chicago was finishing near the bottom of the league in 2006-2007, they weren't total scorched earth. Here are some of the players that were on the team then in 06-07 that were also on the team when they won the Cup in 2010. Uh, Patrick Sharp, Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook, Cam Barker, Dustin Bufflin, Brian Bickle, Dave Boland, Troy Brower. I, again, I'm not saying that except for Duncan Keith, who was actually, who's probably going to be a Hall of Fame defenseman. You know, I'm not saying that a lot of those were key players, but there's no reason why they had to totally burn everything down. You should have a constant churn of little talent coming into your organization. You should be trying to find those value pickups. And even if all you do is end up trading them before they expire because you think, well, we aren't in a position to contend yet, that's still more that comes into your organization. You know, that turns into draft picks, that turns into prospects. And by doing well in that churn of these kind of secondary players, you eventually have them, you have a supporting cast for when you do get your ducks in a row, when you do get the star players. Uh, this applies to Pittsburgh, too, for example. Uh, what, they were very bad in 05-06. And they had Gonchar, Whitney, Malone, Talbot, Orpik, Scuderi, and, of course, Marc-Andre Fleury and Net, all of whom were still there when they went to the finals in 2008. Now, it's a bit of a longer timeline, but the Sabres were so, so bad. And we've talked repeatedly on here about how they were maybe the worst team of the last 15 years. But when they burned everything down, they had Rasmus Ristolainen, who we've, who was maybe like the mascot of our podcast at this point. <laughs> uh, they had Sam Reinhardt on a nine-game sample, and they had Johan Larson, who's like a good depth guy. And that was it. Like, they did not have almost any talent that they could hold over and keep for when the team was good again. And as a result, they wound up where they now are, where they're struggling to cobble together little talent, where they've made mistakes like overpaying Kyle Poso, or they've tried to capture value in other places, like overpaying for kind of middling defensemen. And the result is still that they have a shallow team. Five years later, they've got their star players now. They've got Eichel. They've got Rasmus Dahlin. They've got Sam Reinhardt, who is a good complimentary player, and they have nothing else. Y you know, it is really notable how it can burn you, even if you do get that big talent. It's not enough to just tank and take guys if you don't manage the rest of it well. And so I think Buffalo is kind of a perfect example of having screwed up at both ends because they let big talent go in Ryan O'Reilly, but also because... They let things get so out of hand in terms of the little talent all going away, and they struggled to bring it back again. Mm -hmm. And with um, 
with those guys in Chicago, um, I guess with Pittsburgh too, but especially with Chicago, it's not like they were bad when Chicago was bad. Like those players were considered young, promising players at, at that time. Yeah, right. Some of them weren't playing full seasons yet, but they were in the organization. Right, and and yeah. they were you know ready to make the jump up. It, it, it's not as if um, these guys just happened to turn out well. Like they were not expected to all turn out you know the way they did, but there was some expectation of oh yeah these guys will also be part of our future. Whereas Buffalo like just seemingly got rid of everyone like that. And also partially like it's also a question of you know bad drafting slash development where the guys they drafted who were going to come in at that time just never ended up panning out right and so yeah when you add all that together you can sort of see why buffalo has had such an awful decade because everything went so far down when it was burned down and now everything has had to be restarted again it has a compounding effect like if the sabers had had three or four complimentary guys who held over and Ryan O'Reilly. Now I think maybe they're a playoff team. Maybe you say they actually become too good to draft Rasmus Dahlin. I don't know. But they really did not need to be as bad as they became. And as a result, they're still bad. You know, we're looking at one of the longest streaks of futility in recent NHL history. So that's... um something to remark on if we want to bring this around to the Leafs and you know we always do in the end I think Kyle Dubas has shown some encouraging signs in terms of managing that little talent we're looking at players like Ilya Mikhaev like Jason Spezza uh, we're looking at kind of ELCs or players who look like they're going to be able to contribute on ELCs like um, Rasmus Sandin and Nick Robertson all of those players are going to give you additional value above what they cost. And the more you get that around your star players, the more you are likely to be able to become really, really good as opposed to just, okay. It is worth noting, you know, the money that we overpaid Mitch Marner, that hurts. You know, I, I'm saying you should be more willing to pay your star players, but that doesn't mean that, the, you know, the cap hit that you spend doesn't matter. It just means that it's probably better than losing Mitch Marner because he's such an essential player and he's so hard to replace. So if you want to be encouraged about the Leafs, I think it's that they've shown some ability to manage the little talent churn pretty well. They haven't managed to distribute it to defense yet in a way that has made a real contending team. So... I think that that would be kind of the pro-con of what I would say there. Yeah, with the Leafs, I think the one nice thing, and this is this is this bar is you know so low, it's you know next to Hades. <laughs> I don't worry that the Leafs are going to make a stupid trade for about with one of their stars. Yes, like I don't I don't think that Kyle Dubas is like so pissed at Mitch Marner for winning a negotiation against him that he's going to trade him the second he has a bad season. I don't think that Kyle Dubas is so short-sighted that he would trade William Nylander stuff like that right mm-hmm. i don't think that's going to happen um yeah but yeah the what we haven't talked about really is how do good teams get great right and that's kind of the more interesting problem because how bad teams stay bad a lot of it is foreseeable mistakes there are some that are unforeseeable mistakes you make the right move or what you think is the right move and it doesn't doesn't pan out because sometimes life works that way yeah. right but at, at some point you get to a level where okay, just staying the course and not making mistakes is not going to result in us 
maximizing our chance of winning a cup. And what do you do then? Right. And so that's when it becomes all the more important to find the value wherever you can in little talent. And this is actually a good example in terms of Pittsburgh because it was a move that they made that I, I think we both thought was good. We thought that they probably paid less than this was worth. Jason Zucker. And he's a great example of what I mean when I'm saying little talent is not just guys on minimums and ELCs. Jason Zucker is making $5.5 million a year. The point is he's worth more than that as a complimentary winger. There's no prize for the best managed salary cap, as Katja likes to say. And so the point is not that you should, you know, be so fixated on value that you don't end up spending the money. The point is that you need to maximize the value you're getting there out of those complimentary players. And Pittsburgh has had a pretty successful turn, so to speak, where they have Crosby and Malkin. They know that these guys can make um, players score at like very high rates. And they don't generally fall in love with them. Now, they gave a big extension to Jake Gwensel, but Gwensel, one, appears to be an actual above-average player. The deal is still only $6 million, and it doesn't really go into his 30s. So I think that Pittsburgh is a good example of how you kind of operate in those circumstances. Now, by no means am I saying that Jim Rutherford has done everything right, because he definitely has not. The Brandon Tanev deal is exactly the kind of deal that I would want to avoid. Like, do not do that. Do not give term at $3.5 million to a player like that. That's classic falling in love with a guy who is not a star. But you can survive one or two overpays. You can survive actually quite a few overpays if you have Crosby and Malkin being as good as they are and being as underpaid as they are. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're kind of, I guess my, my favorite example in terms of they've generally gotten great value out of their supporting cast, and it's obviously helped a lot by Crosby and Malkin making these guys more valuable. Like Patrick Hornfist is a great player. He's made a lot better by who he gets to play with. Right, and I think this is something that's also true. The Leafs equivalent to that is Zach Hyman, and Zach Hyman I think is a very good player, mm-hmm. but he's a player that... I think has found the perfect situation for him where, you know, he, I don't think he, he's going to be good or as good if he's on a third line with say Alex Kerfoot and Kasperi Kapanen. I think that'll be a fine third line. Right. But, you know, Hyman's ability to get to the front of the net and create havoc with shots and, and chances from there to forecheck and all that stuff. That is less valuable when the guys who's, who, whose hands he gets the puck into are no longer as good, right? And Hyman's inability right. to transition the puck and really, you know, be a big difference maker in that sense with the puck on his stick is more notable when he doesn't have one or two elite puck handlers on his line, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, they, I, I think perhaps the biggest mistake, not mistake, the biggest thing that befalls most teams is they don't get the right big talent. Right, And we saw this when we went, when we took our look around the NHL. We're, we just looked at, you know, probably 15 teams. We're just like, yeah, there's just not enough talent here. Like, there, there, there's not enough here to be a contender right now. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you, you look at Arizona, not enough. Anaheim, there, there was enough when they had Perry and Getzaf at their prime. There isn't anymore. Right? Um, yeah. Just any random team. Columbus, 
not enough. Even even Dallas, like Dallas has really good star players, but now they're starting to age out a little bit. Ben's getting older and less effective. Sagan is still very, very good. Uh, and getting Heiskanen was, was big for them because he's going to be a, a good bridge, but like, it's it's possible that there's not enough, and it, that's not enough there. And it, the same is true with the Leafs, right? Like our core hasn't proven anything. No, it's true. As good as they've been, they haven't been able to add up to being a genuine contender in terms of like being a top five team. And there are teams that flit in and out of that list, but the two teams that I always come back to as being, these teams are doing it pretty well, and these teams are consistently real contenders for the Stanley Cup, are Boston and Tampa. Like, I just find myself looking at them and saying, okay, they've got so much star value locked in there. In Boston's case, it's because they have three of the best deals in the NHL for Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand. I think it has to be said they got a little lucky in terms of Bergeron and Marchand getting better after signing term contracts for not very much money and staying good, especially in Bergeron's case, well into his 30s thus far. But it also has to be said they've done a good job with the rest of it. There are no longer really any bad contracts on the Boston Bruins. Bacchus was the big bad one. And then Krejci is probably a little overpaid at this point. But they've done a really good job surrounding those players with affordable talent. I They're not as deep at forward as teams like Tampa. But it's impossible to build perfect teams. Beyond that, I think that they've done a good job of getting talent into the organization with good drafting. Uh, notwithstanding the oh shit they could get draft that they had. Uh, and then you look at Tampa. And Tampa has just had a phenomenal value to lock in value on these deals like Braden Point and Steven Stamkos and even Nikita Kucherov. So, yeah, it, like that step to surrounding that talent is, is a big one. Once you have the value captured there or locked in there, it does matter that the Leafs are paying their stars a lot more than comparable players. You know, I'm not saying that it's nothing that the Leafs are probably out maybe four or five million at the high end. That's probably too much, but compared to what it might have cost. And yeah, I mean, that's something that you just have to work around in terms of, okay, you have less space to operate. I do want to talk about Arizona briefly, Mm -hmm. just because they're such a good example of, I think they know or at least I think that they agree with a lot of what we've been talking about here in terms of big and little talent. They've done a lot of churn with little talent, and they've been trying to get star players. They tried to get Phil Kessel. I, they, they did, but they got a declining Phil Kessel. They got Taylor Hall, but they got a rental Taylor Hall who's probably going to leave. They're struggling with the fact that they didn't get a big hit on Dylan Strom, and now what do they do? They're now so good that it's hard to add star players and they're kind of stuck. Uh, They've hoped to lock in excellent value in guys like Schmaltz and Dvorak. And, you know, if Arizona could get, um, you know, a huge draft lottery win or something like that, and they come out with like a first line center, they get interesting because they have a supporting cast that could be pretty good or could contribute in terms of little talent. 
but the big talent just is not there and they're aware of it, but they're a good illustration of how hard it is to get any other way than not bombing your, your first picks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the issue of how do you get to that top tier is a tough one. And some of it is you have to get lucky. And it is worth noting, as we said earlier, goaltending overbears everything. If you have really bad goaltending, you don't really have a contending team ever. And if you have excellent goaltending, you kind of always do. You know, Boston's a great defensive team, but they've also had two excellent goaltenders the last couple of seasons. And that goes a long way. So that is sort of a, a clouding factor in all this. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of teams sort of at different points on these cycles who are doing a better or worse job at the turn of little talent or who have or don't have enough stars. And it's not as simple as maybe we've made it look or made it sound. But I think that it really is kind of the right way to approach it. And I think Chicago for a time, did quite a good job of it. Like They're kind of a classic example in terms of they would spin off uh, secondary players and continue to keep working with their core. And it worked until the core basically started to collapse. And now they don't have any kind of adequate defense. And they also lost a star player in Artemi Panarin, but I think it was a little more understandable at the time than some of these other deals. Yeah, there was that great... Um chart that Dom Deshishan posted of Panarin versus Saad's goal saved or sorry goals um, game score value added rather mm-hmm. um, and it was like basically even up till the time of the trade and as soon as they got traded it, they just completely diverged and Panarin yeah. became a superstar and Saad did not um, and yep. maybe there's something about team effects that we could talk about there um, although I mean I don't know it, it, it's is Columbus I, I, it's hard for me to believe that Columbus was somehow propping up Brandon Saad's value in any way. Um, but yeah, like it, yeah. It, it's, you know, you can make mistakes. There, there's a lot of things that people shit on Chicago for, rightfully so. I think the biggest thing is, you know, we, we talked about Brent Seabrook at, in his prime. Sure, maybe he was big talent, and even that's questionable. If you look at his, his stats his over his entire career, um, they haven't been great since like 2011. But they fell in love with someone who was not going to be big talent over the course of the contract that they signed up to. And who wasn't at the time that they signed him. Mm-hmm. It's worth saying you you have to be clear that your stars are star players and you can't fall in love with the idea of them. Even at, you know, even at his, his peak, he was probably generously the fifth most important skater on those teams behind Taze, Kane, Hosa, and Keith. Um, but he certainly was not as good as he needed to be for this to be worth contemplating at the time they signed the deal because he was already in decline. So, yeah, look, it, all of this is tough. It's, it's worth noting. It is hard to correctly evaluate talent, but I really do think you have to try and get that core in place and then to ruthlessly manage the turn of players. And it, it is worth noting. I think, like, a lot of the secondary guys that we like and enjoy on the Leafs are going to have to turn over 
fairly quickly over time. Like I, I've said before, I don't think that we're going to be signing Zach Hyman's next contract. The way it's going, maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe there will be circumstances that allow us to get value there. But there's a decent chance that he's going to be overpaid on the next one. Mm-hmm. Because it's an unrestricted free agent thing, and now he's scoring. So, yeah, th- that's kind of how I see it all in terms of uh, evaluating teams. And to be clear, I've definitely mistook certain players, you know, or like misunderstood where the Leafs were. Sometimes I thought they were better than they were. But I think that this is basically how things tend to work in the NHL. Cool. So we have solved hockey. Yeah, it's done now. You're welcome, everybody. Uh, That's how it works. Just in time for the NHL to be canceled forever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We totally would have been able to build a winning hockey team if hockey ever existed again. Yes. Yep. All right, cool. Um, So was there anything else you wanted to discuss? Uh, No, I've probably talked enough. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so one thing I wanted to talk about, and we don't have to do it now, actually, because we're we're about an hour, so that's a pretty natural spot to cut it off. Maybe we'll talk about this next week, but I've been watching those old hockey games Sportsnet has on. Mm. Jesus, it's an unrecognizable sport from then to now. Just, I mean, the biggest thing to me is that goaltending is so different. I'm not even talking about compared to the 80s when it was like, you know, the guy basically stood up the whole game and you could score a lot of goals by shooting past his feet. But even after the advent of the butterfly, lateral movement has come so far in the last 15 years. Like when I was growing up, if there was a two-on-one coming in, the defenseman was supposed to exclusively play the pass and no goalie was ever expected to be remotely able to save a pass and then shot on a two-on-one. It was just like, well, if they get it over there, then there's nothing he can do. Now you will consistently see, you know, where you have the positioning against the post or you have players who are so laterally agile that they can shoot over and they can make saves on those shots a decent percentage of the time. Not always, but enough that it matters. And that would have been incredible to me like 15 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's really stunning. Goalies are just so much more athletic now. I, I guess all players are, but it's most notable in goaltending. Yeah, for sure. And like the way that it, the game is played has changed so much uh, in, in net. You know, it's changed everywhere, but I feel like if you brought, you know, if you brought forward some of the great players of the olden times and then, you know, help them accustom to modern conditioning and stuff like that, I think a lot of them would be able to, to adapt to some extent, except the guys who were especially slow. Um, goaltending is like a different job now. It's just totally different. And I'm not saying that it's like impossible to compare now and then, but it's very different in terms of how you perform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so maybe we'll talk yeah. about that more uh, later. I, I, I watched the, uh, the 2001 game one uh, between Ottawa and the Leafs yesterday, which is the Sundin um, overtime goal. Oh, yeah. And, man, Ottawa must have, like, it, this is not a unique thing to say. Ottawa just must have hated us. We were their Boston, right? Like, no matter how oh, well yeah. they did in the regular season. Like, in that series, they were the two seed and we were the seven seed. And we swept it. Yep. Yeah, we were brutal to them. And, like, years they would have quite good teams. Didn't matter. <laughs> we were awful. Uh, I miss being the villains. Mm. That was fun. Yeah. 
All right, so um, that'll probably wrap it up for us. Thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fulman's stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at RB and AT Fulman. Uh, we'll, we will see you next week.